The old pilot's playing tales, disappearing into thin air. As Air Commodore Peter Taylor described it, it sounded pretty light-hearted. He was in Germany flying his Harrier, X-Ray Victor 794, heading out to the second target of the mission and he glanced down into the small space of his cockpit to rearrange the maps he needed for the attack. No sophisticated satellite navigation back in 1972, not even an inertial reference system or moving map display. Just a paper map, stopwatch and compass. Bombing along at 420 knots, around 250 feet, when he looked back up, he saw a trio of birds flying straight at him. Bunting to avoid them, he missed two, but the third took a dive down into the large cheek intakes of the single Pegasus engine, causing an almighty bang. The engine had wound down to below idle, and at 200 feet, with the speed decaying rapidly, there were few options. With some wiring mechanical noises coming from the engine, he broadcast a quick mayday without much hope that anyone would hear him from that height and looked ahead for a safe area to dump the aircraft. Whilst considering his options, he exercised the throttle to see if he could get any response from the engine, but it sounded like it had suffered a catastrophic failure. The newspapers would praise him for avoiding a built-up area and the inevitable school or church, but in reality he remembered saying to himself that he'd better get out soon or he was going to go in with the crippled aircraft. Pointing at what looked like some open ground, he had one quick last look around the cockpit. He was at a hundred feet and only 200 knots. He trimmed the aircraft, gave his straps a quick tighten and pulled the handle. His Martin Baker Mark IX ejector seat worked perfectly and within a matter of a second or two he was dangling below his parachute and heading towards a field full of cows. He had time to try to steer his parachute away from a pile of concrete blocks before hitting the ground in fairly good order. The whole event had lasted less than 60 seconds. Looking up to watch his aircraft make a large hole in the ground, he was astonished to see the Harrier continuing to fly away from him, climbing slightly. Apart from the lack of canopy and ejector seat, it seemed to be working perfectly, and eventually it flew itself into the cloud above him at around 7,000 feet and disappeared into thin air. Apparently, the pilotless Harrier climbed to over 20,000 feet and began to head towards the East German border. At the height of the Cold War, the RAF were anxious that their marvel of aviation technology shouldn't fall into the wrong hands, so fighters were scrambled to bring it down. It appears that a Luftwaffe F-104 may well have found the aircraft flying along quite nicely, all on its own, 
but before any action could be taken, it glided down into southern Denmark, where it buzzed a farmhouse before landing in an open field. The aircraft had managed a 38-minute flight without a pilot. It would appear that the bird that went down the intake caused the engine to stall, but it became dislodged, possibly by the flame and gases from the ejector seat, and now getting a clear air supply, the Pegasus 100 promptly started behaving itself again, powering the pilotless fighter on its own private little journey. At least this story has a happy ending. Other aircraft that have flown themselves have rarely done so without some accompanying tragedy. It was some 16 years later when another Harrier, flown by the British Aerospace Sea Harrier Project test pilot, Taylor Scott, who was conducting a series of production test flights of a GR5, Zulu Delta 325, out of the production facility at Dunsfold Aerodrome in the south of England. There were some outstanding items to clear, particularly concerning the aircraft's oxygen system. Getting airborne late in the afternoon, Scott climbed into the Boscombe Down area and, talking to London military, he levelled at 30,000 feet and headed westwards. He was due to remain at that altitude for about 15 minutes, but after 20 minutes, without any calls to London military and still heading west, his controller tried to contact him without success. Many attempts were made to get Scott to respond, including asking other aircraft to relay messages, but nothing further was ever heard. Concern mounted as the Harrier continued to head westwards towards the Irish Sea and Southern Ireland, but a USAF C-5 Galaxy was in the area, and agreed to be vectored towards the Harrier. Two more unlikely aircraft to be in formation. It's hard to imagine a vast galaxy and a tiny Harrier, but the American crew were able to spot the fighter and close up into formation. The combination of aircraft holding hands seemed surreal enough, but what they reported raised the hairs up on the controller's neck. The Harrier appeared perfectly normal, except that there was no pilot aboard. The canopy was closed, and an empty ejector seat sat within the aircraft as it cruised along at 30,000 feet. They took photographs of the fighter and a video recording, which clearly showed the ejector seat in place and the canopy closed. They followed the aircraft, which continued its relentless journey west until at a little past seven o'clock in the evening, it apparently ran out of fuel and slowly spiralled down into the Atlantic Ocean, 500 miles west of Southern Ireland. This accident, reminiscent of the most devious of Sherlock Holmes' mysteries, flummoxed all involved until, sadly, the body of the pilot was found by a gamekeeper in a field on Salisbury Plain, not far from Boscombe Down Airfield, a day later. So, how on earth did the unfortunate test pilot end up departing from a perfectly serviceable aircraft without using his ejector seat 
and subsequently perishing. The inquest into Taylor Scott's death revealed that he was found with a very badly damaged parachute which was still attached to him and it was likely that he was unable to survive the landing. He was found with a broken arm which probably occurred as he left the aircraft but his other arm was in the parachute cords probably trying to get it to deploy further and arrest his descent. A thorough examination found pieces of the canopy distributed along the aircraft's track. The aircraft itself, despite an extensive search, was unrecoverable from the depths of the Atlantic. From the limited information available, the investigators attempted to piece together the likely sequence of events. What was clear was that the ejector seat drogue gun had fired. The drogue gun normally fires after the ejector seat has left the aircraft and it shoots a metal rod upwards that pulls out the drogue, a small parachute, which stabilises the seat and stops it tumbling. At the correct time, usually passing 10,000 feet, the drogue is released from a scissor shackle that holds it to the top of the seat and then it pulls out the main parachute which is packed into the head box of the ejector seat. As this happens the pilot is released from the harness that previously attached him to the seat and he would fall free to descend safely under the deployed canopy. Should this release mechanism fail to operate correctly the pilot is free to use the manual release handle which overrides the automatic system built into the seat and performs the same function that I just described. What had apparently happened was that the drogue gun had fired with the seat and pilot still in the aircraft, an unthinkable event. The drogue bolt would have punctured the top of the canopy, dragging the drogue out with it, which would have deployed in the airstream. Scott's seat harness would have been released, and his parachute would have followed the drogue through the broken canopy, dragging the test pilot out of his seat, through the inch-thick canopy, and away from the aircraft, probably causing severe injury. It was surmised that the parachute caught on a probe on the fin of the Harrier and may have hung there for a while before tearing free, shredding the fabric and rendering the parachute fatally damaged. The main reason for the firing of the drogue gun was the subject of much conjecture. It was extremely unlikely that it misfired due to an ejector seat failure, so other causes were examined. Three possible reasons were postulated. Scott's oxygen hose was found disconnected, and it is possible that he became hypoxic during the cockpit depressurization check. That was one of the test events he was required to perform, and he made a mistake. However, it was more likely that the hose became disconnected on impact with the ground, and this was discounted. Another test event was the selection of the emergency oxygen system. This handle is situated in a similar position to the manual separation handle that fries the drogue gun, but on the opposite side. It operates differently and is purposely shaped to allow recognition. 
Was it possible that the manual separation handle was pulled in error instead of the EO2 handle? Operating the manual separation handle requires the seat firing handle to have been pulled first since there is an interlock just to prevent inadvertent use. Considering Scott's ability, a test pilot of very high standing, it was not only unlikely but would have required three independent faults and errors. After extensive testing, it was discovered that the most likely cause was that the manual separation cartridge was fired inadvertently by a foreign object. It was discovered that the Wonder Light, a movable lamp held by a clip, could have fallen down the side of the seat and lodged near the sear that fires the manual separation cartridge. Heading into a low sun and needing to see the central warning panel, it's likely that Scott lowered his seat to better see, and as the seat came down, the lamp distorted the rod leading to the sear, which pulled it free, firing the cartridge, and starting the chain of events that led to Taylor Scott's death. Although not conclusively proven, the Wonderlamp clip was redesigned and Martin Baker fitted a guard around the possible area of vulnerability. The exact cause of this intriguing mystery will never be known for sure and at the inquest the coroner recorded an open verdict. The final accident in this trio is something that I myself might have succumbed to, having once got airborne in an F-18 with my oxygen hose disconnected. I was lucky in that my regular RAF hypoxia training kicked in. I recognised the symptoms and solved the problem. Sadly, this is not always the case. Not long after I left the Australian F-18 Hornet Force, a pilot was climbing to height to return to his base at Tyndall in the Northern Territories. He had already been at altitude before descending to low level to conduct a target attack, and with his wingman he was on his way home. During the climb he made a normal radio call at around 22,000 feet, whilst he continued up towards his target cruise level of 33,000 feet. For reasons unknown, he momentarily levelled at 28,000, but then continued upwards. However, he failed to stop the climb at 33,000 feet and continued higher. Both his wingman and air traffic control called him, but he failed to respond to any radio transmissions. Now above 37,000 feet, his wingman closed up and saw, for the first time, that his leader was slumped forward with his oxygen mask off. The aircraft continued eastwards, and despite everyone's best efforts, it proved impossible to raise the stricken pilot. Eventually, short of fuel, his wingman was forced to break off and head back to Tyndall to land. The F-18 continued to slowly climb until it reached 46,000 feet and went beyond Tyndall's radar limit. It was assumed that it crashed at some point several hundred miles east of the base when, 
fuel exhausted, it would have come down. Indeed, some three years later, the crash site was found in a remote area, and its pilot, Cameron Conroy, was finally laid to rest. The aircraft had been completely destroyed and was unable to contribute to the original findings. During the investigation, it was revealed that Cam, as he was known to his friends and colleagues, had a habit of flying with his oxygen mask removed. He discussed with others how he thought that it was unnecessary to wear the mask all the time since the cockpit pressurization was normally around 8,000 feet and even when flying his fighter at 30,000 feet it still only reached around 12,000 feet. With a cabin altitude that low it would be unlikely that he would have suffered from hypoxia and he didn't feel in danger. Sadly, it appears that on the day prior to his crash, Cam's aircraft had been worked on by engineers who, according to their procedures, would have selected the cabin pressure switch to the dump position. Had this selection not been corrected by the pilot during his pre-flight checks, the cockpit would not have pressurized. So when Cam removed his mask, had he not checked his cabin altitude indicator, nor felt the physiological effects of the reduced pressure, he would have been unaware that he was placing himself in mortal danger. As he climbed into the rarefied atmosphere at high level, his time of useful consciousness would have only been a few minutes at most. A short time after dropping his mask, he would have fallen unconscious and a while later passed away while his aircraft continued climbing further into the thin air. This incredibly sad event, for Cam was a much loved and admired man, reminded all who took for granted flying in a hostile environment that the consequences of inattention can be deadly. These consequences are not just restricted to military pilots though, as we will discover in the very next plain tale. If you enjoy listening to Plain Tales, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.